I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. I'm Jordan. I got my Chelsea boots on for this one. (laughs) Yes, this is the second part of our special two-part Beatle Brawl series. Uh, If you heard our previous episode, we talked about the rivalry between John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and which is like, you know, a very famous rivalry. I feel like it's... uh, it's like a Bible story, isn't it, for rock fans? <laughs> yeah, a musical Cain and Abel, I guess, in a way, yeah. So that story is really famous. I think what is less sung, is that a, I don't know if that's a word, less sung, or I'll say unsung, relatively unsung, is the rivalry between Lennon and McCartney as a team and George Harrison, uh, the, the junior member of the Beatles, who was also a very good songwriter but did not get the respect always that he deserved from the other two songwriters in the band. You know, I had a teacher once who told me, you know, the older you get, the more you're going to see that George Harrison was kind of the coolest Beatle. And this was maybe 20 years ago. And I keep thinking of that. And I see that he's kind of right. I think so. I All you had to do was look at the cover of Cloud Nine, his solo record from like... <laughs> where he, the most know, chill like, cover. From like the late 80s, he's like wearing the Hawaiian shirt. And he has like the... The Oakley sunglasses on, his hair's all blown back, and it looks like he's like floating in the sky. And I'm like, oh yeah, that is the chillest dude in the world. It's dad rock nirvana, really. <laughs> but of course, that was like 20 years after the Beatles. He was not chill when he was in the Beatles. He had a hard time. No. Uh, and it's basically why he ended up just meditating for the rest of his life after he left the Beatles. Um, with some pit stops into cocaine abuse. Uh, every now and then in the 70s. Um, and Monty Python. But, and Monty Cocaine Python. and Monty Co- Python. Cocaine and Monty Python. Uh, so there's a lot to talk about here. So without further ado, 
let's get into this mess. So it's important to know that George's entree in the Beatles is through his schoolmate, Paul McCartney, who's his friend from the school bus. And Paul Macca. initially, Macca, yeah. Macca would try to brush him off because George was in the year below. And, you know, you can't sit next to a, a younger kid on the school bus. You just can't. That's against the rules of, of coolness in the school. But eventually, I guess every other seat in the bus was probably taken and he had to sit next to George. And they soon realized they had a lot to talk about. They both loved rock and roll and guitars. And at this point, Paul was in a band with John, the Corey men, a.k.a. the Primordial Beatles. And uh, Paul initially had been hired as a lead guitarist. But during their first gig with Paul, he completely botched the solo. I think the song was Guitar Boogie. And, and he did not boogie on that guitar that night. So Ooh. it became quickly apparent that they needed somebody else to fill the, uh, the lead guitar spot. So Paul recommended his friend George. And there's the, the sort of very famous story of, of George auditioning for John on the top deck of a bus one night, an empty bus, which is, you know, gone down in the Beatle lore as this mythological kind of test with John Lennon. Yeah, he played the song Raunchy. Bill Justice. Late 50s hit, instrumental song. Yeah, if you watch any Beatles documentary, you'll hear this story. Like, I, I've seen several documentaries. I've heard this story about 8 million times. But I'm, I'm always delighted by it, you know, because it just shows, yeah, these guys at one point were just teenagers forming a band. And, you know, Harrison... Not only was he younger, but he looked younger. He looks like a fetus, like when you look at those early photos of of the band. I mean, he looks like a really little kid. Oh my god! Well, they, they used to they used to smear dirt on his face to make it look like five o'clock shadows, so we could get in the clubs and stuff. That's how, <laughs> which is not something I considered when I was that age. But yeah, that you know, so I that's, how that's like why looked. Harrison had like huge beards, like by the end of the sixties, because it was just like, <laughs> hey, I don't need to cover in dirt anymore, buddy. <laughs> I'm I'm hair suit as hell right now. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's like George, he was only eight months younger than Paul. And I guess he was two and a half years younger than John. But he, you know, he was a little bit shorter than them. And it just seems like he had like little brother syndrome in the Beatles. Like if you know, we were talking in our previous episode, it's such an archetypal story about friendship, like how they came together and, and, and how they fell apart. And with George, it's like a, it's more like a family aspect. And it's like you have the two older brothers who are like the stars of the school, you know, who are you know good at everything. And then like you're the you're like the little brother who's, um, you know, trying to trying to stand out. Yeah, he and, used to literally tag along with John on his dates with his girlfriends. Like he would like you know just just follow oh, down the street. Yeah, I mean it was really a case of literal tagging along. He wanted he wanted to his hero to to to, to look at him to give him some words of praise. And, you know, like all families, like the role that you have when you're a kid, those roles tend to stick around, I think, in a lot of families. Like if, like if you were known when you were eight years old as the, as the one who didn't like mashed potatoes, like <laughs> when you're 38, your mom is still going to bring up how you don't like mashed potatoes. And like Harrison, as the Beatles progress, you know, they treated him like the little kid, you know, the one that like, okay, John and Paul, we're going to write all the hits. We're going to do all the work. You just play the guitar. You don't need to worry about it. And also, he ends up getting described as the quiet Beatle, uh, which is kind of a diminishing nickname. It's not like the cute one, for instance. Like, people call Paul McCartney the cute one. You know, George Harrison was the quiet one. And I remember reading this story about how, like, when they first went to America, George Harrison didn't talk a lot because he had a sore throat. And he's like, that's why I didn't talk a lot, because I couldn't really talk. And I was trying to save my voice. 
but he was like, if I'm the quiet one, then that means that the other ones were really loud. Because you know? <laughs> he definitely didn't see himself that way. No, I mean, there's the famous story when they're talking to George Martin in the studio for the first time, and George is kind of like showing them around. They're this young, completely inexperienced band, first time in like a, you know, a, well, not their first, one of the first times in a major recording studio. And George uh, Martin goes, is there anything you don't like? George Harrison looks right back at him and says, yeah, I don't like your tie, which is not something a quiet, meek guy would say to your your new boss in the studio with the, who you signed a contract with. So, I mean, that that I think tells you a lot more about George than, than meets the eyes that he he had some he had some spunk. He had, he, was, he had some jokes. George Harrison's got jokes. He's like the most I don't want to diagnose him as bipolar because I don't think he's literally bipolar. But there is these there are these extremes to his personality. Yeah. Where on one hand, you know, he's like this very spiritual, chill introspective person and there's like this other side where there's an anger to him and like also like a viciousness to his sense of humor where he could be just as cutting as john lennon you know like he had that same thing in him and they were raging together at the same time it's what makes him such an interesting person to think about yeah a whole a great example of still waters run deep which is and he would get angrier as his time in the beatles progressed i mean it, it kind of like as you were saying earlier John and Paul kind of carved up the songwriting between them. I guess they had talked earlier on about whether or not to cut George in because some of the early instrumental songs George has a credit on, like so early stuff like Cry for a Shadow, stuff that, that showed up on the anthology. But they decided just to keep it simple and keep it just the two of them. And uh, so when George started songwriting, he really had to come from nowhere in a group that had Lennon and McCartney, the greatest songwriting duo of the latter 20th century. And it is wild to me how that stayed so rigid. Even as McCartney and Lennon essentially stopped writing together, you know, as the 60s progressed, they still would put their names together, like on, on all their songs, you know, even like, I think, Give Peace a Chance, yeah. which is like a solo John Lennon song. That's like a Lennon McCartney, McCartney song. Yeah. Just because like Lennon, and I think, you know, Lennon still felt this sort of sense of loyalty to Paul that he had to maintain uh, that facade. And yet they never thought to bring George in, you know, like the, there was never this thought like, okay, like George, he started to write pretty good songs into the mid sixties. Like if I needed someone, obviously tax man, uh, I want to tell you he's showing some potential, you know, why not bring him in? It's like when George, you know, got into the late sixties and he started assembling the songs that would go on his first post Beatles solo record, which is all things must pass. You know, he was hanging out with Bob Dylan. You know, the songwriter of songwriters and Bob Dylan offered to do a co-write with him. You know, they did the song uh, I'd Have You Anytime. Oh, yeah, yeah. So like Bob Dylan was willing to write with George Harrison, but Lennon McCartney weren't. And I mean, that really, I think, was eating at him as, you know, the band continued. And, you know, in their defense, yeah, his early songs probably weren't that good. He had to come from, he'd always say in interviews, you know, John and Paul wrote all their bad songs years before we had a record contract. So suddenly I had to kind of come from nowhere and write songs that could, that wouldn't totally sound out of place on albums filled with, with their brilliant hits. So, I mean, you, you feel bad for him, but in a way, John and Paul, they were, it was a business and they didn't, they, they weren't in the business of nurturing a new artist. They were just trying to get the job done and make a hit single. So I see both sides kind of. I got to say like, you know, the first Harrison song, on a Beatles record is Don't Bother Me. It's on with the Beatles. I like that song. I think it's a pretty good song. I don't think it's like as good as like All My Lovin' or like, you know, all the great Beatles, like, or I Want to Hold Your Hand or She Loves You. But 
you could see already that Harrison had a persona in the Beatles. Cantankerous. Yeah. uh, Yeah. This sort of (laughs) cantankerous loner thing that like added a lot to the band. And it's interesting, like how I think George Harrison became an archetype for other similar songwriters and other bands, you know, because we can look at the Beatles and you can look at all the ways that they influenced subsequent bands, how bands imitated what they did sometimes unintentionally, you know, like how bands fell apart in many ways, sort of echo the ways that the Beatles fell apart. But I'm always intrigued by bands that have like a George Harrison figure in the, in the band. Like I think of like drive by truckers in their aunts incarnation. Like when Jason Isbell was in the band, like he was like the George Harrison of drive by truckers at that time. Also like one of my favorite bands of all time is guided by voices, great nineties indie rock band. Robert Pollard is like the Lennon McCartney in one body of that band. But then there's this other guy, <laughs> Tobin Sprout, who was like the George Harrison of that. And I, and I always kind of pull for the George Harrison figures. It's like always the guy who is the dark as horse dominant as like, yeah, exactly. The dark horse person. And you always feel like, oh, they're, they're so good on their like three or four songs that they get allotted on the album. Like what if they could be spotlighted? Like on their own. You know, that's always the intrigue of the George Harrison figure. And of course, that started with George himself. And uh, that was a niche that he ended up carving for himself on these records. And the funny thing about Don't Bother Me, like you were saying, is that the, George Martin and all the Beatles would say in later years, you know, George's songs were kind of rush jobs because we didn't want to waste time on them because they were just a George song. And the first thing that you hear on Don't Bother Me, if you listen to it closely, is studio chatter. It's George saying, too fast. He's telling his bandmates, slow, slow down, which is, I think, just such a funny way to start his like solo songwriting career is him yelling at his bandmates. And obviously they kept the too fast version because that's the one we're hearing right now. Right. So I don't know. I think that's very telling. It's almost like, yeah, it's almost like they're taking the piss out of him. And and that did become a thing, I think, with Harrison as the Beatles progressed, where he felt like they weren't giving it their like that that John and Paul weren't giving it their all, like on his songs. Like they they weren't as invested in those songs. And you know, the big example of that is, of course, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which was a song they worked on over and over again. And Harrison just felt like the takes were dead and they weren't you know, doing this song that he felt was really good justice. So then he ends up bringing Eric Clapton. And then, of course, then John and Paul snap into shape. But, I mean, aren't there examples, too, of like Harrison playing on Lennon-McCartney songs like where... Like they were slagging his playing too. Like they didn't like his guitar playing sometimes. Oh yeah. I mean, especially around like 65, Paul started taking a lot of the guitar solos because George, and you read a lot of this in Jeff Emmerich, their engineer's uh, memoir. Uh, oh yeah. George some, sometimes took, it's That's kind of the pitchiest Beatle book. Yeah. Right. It's like, there's a lot of, a lot of dirt in that, but George, I guess would take a long time to get his solos sometimes. And Paul is you know a very well documented perfectionist and he was fed up with it so he started taking solos on a lot of songs ticket to ride another girl the night before drive my car even tax man which is george's own song paul said all right george you know what let me let me give a shot at this and you know it's hard to argue paul's solos are incredible but i mean that really annoyed George to know like his one role in the band that was exclusively his was being encroached on by paul mccartney (laughs) See, and I, I mean, look, yeah, those songs have cool solos on them. I will say I love George Harrison's guitar playing. And I think that the sound of his guitar, especially like his slide guitar, is such a distinctive, mm. 
audio sort of trademark of like early 70s rock not only just like on the george harrison solo songs but like you can hear it in like america songs and like bad finger songs bad finger yeah and it's like, there's so many like it, it, it's like that just that sound of that, that that slide guitar sound i think it's so distinctively george so i, I love his guitar playing um but yeah i, I just think mccartney was such a control freak <laughs> with especially with his own songs i mean again like the famous example i, I feel like of that is from the movie let it be the documentary like where they're trying to play i think it's i've got a feeling yeah and, oh, it's brutal um, he's just like humming the solo over and over again to him and and this was like a real thing for for harrison as the beatles you know got into those later records that like you know mccartney would always want to compose the guitar solo and there's that famous outburst where he says you know you know i'll play what you want me to play or i won't play at all you know whatever it is I can do to please you, you know, I'll do it, you know, very catty. And of course he ends up storming (laughs) out of the studio uh, shortly after that. Um, You know, and I think he rightfully felt that, you know, I'm the guitar player in the Beatles. I've, you know, I've got a certain stature. I'm here to do a job. I'm here to do a job. Let me do it. But I'm sure if you look at it from like Paul's perspective and, and also John's perspective, I mean, I I think Paul was more confrontational with George, but as we'll get into, there's lots of examples of John sort of slagging George off too. You know, I think they felt like, well, we're Lennon and McCartney. Like we wrote all the hits. We're the captains of this band and we're better than you. So we know better than you, you know, and no other band would George Harrison have to deal with that kind of treatment except in the, in the band that he happened to be in, you know, and that ended up being like the big sort of catch 22 of his career at that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the late 60s, going to hang out with with Bob Dylan and the band and Delaney and Bonnie and Eric Clapton, all these like incredibly just huge artists that that have all the integrity in the world think that George is amazing, but he just can't get that respect in his own, you know, his own metaphorical home. It's going back to the family thing. You're just the little kid with dirt on your face who can't nail the solo. (laughs) All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? 
Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. It seems like... George is like real starting, like his feelings of like starting to pull out of the band. Wouldn't you say it's Sergeant Pepper? I mean, because I, I feel like I've read books like where he's talked about feeling pretty bored during the making of that. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, he's there. I think there's something like six songs where he's like not even playing on it. Or if he is, he's playing like, you know, a tambourine or something. And there's not a lot to do because in that era, they weren't playing together as a live band. They were just building it almost like a film with overdubs. And yeah, he would say like, I would take my guitar out of the case and Paul would all of a sudden come wheeling over and say, no, 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 we're not doing that yet. And uh, and Ringo tells the story where he says, you know, Sergeant Pepper was great, but I learned to play chess on it because there was so much time to kill <laughs> in between takes that it was just, there was nothing to really do. And also George had just come back from, from India right before the session started, where it was his first experience out there. He was getting deep into the music and, and, uh, and religion of the region. And all of a sudden he came back into the sort of industrial Abbey Road studio with the fluorescent lights and Paul telling him what to do. And he later said, you know, I was losing interest in being fab at that point. And it just wasn't, his heart really wasn't there. And and also they rejected his song too. Let's not forget about that. Oh yeah, it was only a Northern song, which I think ended up on like the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. <laughs> like, the when, Graveyard of that's Beatles like songs. Where that song, exactly. They're basically throwing it in the Hudson River, you know, like <laughs> the Beatle equivalent of that. But uh, yeah, they rejected that song, but then he came back with with within you without you which i think is a superior song you know, oh, to be yeah. fair to only a northern song and you know it's an example of like how george harrison didn't get a lot of real estate on beatles records but but that song and i guess love you too which was on revolver are you know as responsible as any songs for introducing you know the sounds of india and, and sitar music into rock and roll i mean i I don't know if there's, a, I guess like Brian Jones playing on, on Paint uh, Black, Paint Black yeah. would be, would be the other, you know, person to, to bring that in. But I mean, I, I feel like George Harrison. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, nah, th- there are two sounds that you think of when you think of sixties music, it's sitar. And then you think of the chiming 12 string, which was also George's Rickenbacker. So really when you think about it, the sounds of the sixties are his instruments. Absolutely. And you feel like he wanted to bring that more into the band than they would allow. I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned he took that India trip before Sgt. Pepper. Then there was like the really famous India trip where they went to see the Maharishi and like all the Beatles went there where they ended up writing most of the White Album, basically, when they were there. Although George did, like was pissed that they were writing songs. Oh, yeah, he would like, snap at Paul. We're not here to do the next album. He would snap at Paul. Right, right. He's like, you know, because, you know, Paul can only meditate for so long. He had to, like, think of, like, the next record. And I I read some Beatle book where he was 
recounting this story. I think it was Peter Doggett's book, You Never Give Me Your Money, which is a fabulous book. It's about the post-breakup years of the Beatles. Um, but in Paul's account of the story, he says, excuse me for breathing. Just <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like such a like teenage girl, you know, <laughs> r- response to that. You know, like, like even just thinking about that in retrospect, that was like really annoying for him, which I thought was hilarious. Um, but yeah, then like Lennon wrote sexy Sadie when he was there, which was like a shot, the Maharishi. And like, I don't think Harrison was, I mean, Harrison, I think was still, and because it was the whole sex scandal with the Maharishi, which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever heard the conspiracy theory that that was like trumped up by famous John Lennon associate Magic Alex? Oh, yeah, I still because, yeah, the story was that Maharishi maybe hit on Mia Farrow who was also studying there. But yeah, right. But Magic- like in Spitz's book, Bob Spitz's book, The Beatles, which is a great Beatles biography, if you haven't read it, you know, we talked about it in our previous episode. Spitz basically says that he feels that the Maharishi, that that story like might not have happened, or at least it was highly in doubt that he actually like was hitting on women or that he maybe, you know, took liberties with someone he shouldn't have. And he felt that it was John Lennon's famously insane associate magic Alex, who was supposedly this like electronics wizard, but was really just like a lunatic. Basically like he was supposed to build a studio for the Beatles. And it was, you know, basically like a box of like copper wires. And that was it, you know, (laughs) like a toilet with a radio Uh, in it and stuff. Yeah, exactly. But that magic Alex like wanted to get John away from the Maharishi because he felt like the Maharishi was usurping his own sort of hold over John Lennon. So he made up this story about the Maharishi. Anyway, we're, that's a big tangent. Maybe that'll be for our Magic Alex versus <laughs> Maharishi rivalries podcast. But I, because I, I, I hadn't read that before. I, I was really intrigued when I read that in Spitz's book. But anyway, I mean, that sets the table for the White Album, which of course is like, a famously fractious period in Beatles history. Oh, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the Walmart Guitar Gently Weeps saga. Um, also recorded around this time, wasn't for the album, though, was Hey Jude, Paul's incredible, sweeping seven and a half minute single. Uh, one of the more perfect Beatles singles ever, longest charting number one in the US. Uh, Paul is starting to record it, and George starts to play little echoing guitar riffs, and Paul turns to him and says, George, don't play, not now. Wait a couple, wait a couple verses. George never forgot that. That really stuck in his crawl, that being told by Paul not to play right now. And uh, and Paul, even right. in later years, too, said, wow, you know, telling the great George Harrison guitarist extraordinaire not to play. I can see how now looking back on it probably reads wrong. But, uh, you know, objectively for the song, it was, he was probably, right, though. Yeah, oh, totally right. It's got to be said, you don't need a lot. One of the great parts of that song is that it's just McCartney at the beginning with the piano. And it just builds to that. I mean, I don't need to explain why Hey Jude is good. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm trying to, it's like, you guys, there's a song, Hey Jude. It's like a really cool song. This is why it's good. But, you know, like we all know why it's good. So we'll, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, but so there's that thing with McCartney, but then like Lennon isn't even showing up to play on Harrison's songs at that time. Right? No. Yeah. He, he was barely there for any of Harrison's songs. And then when he was there, he brought Yoko. Which is a whole other thing, which I know we touched on in the last which, episode. But yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's a whole other thing with the Yoko thing. But it, it, it's just like another sign of like this sort of disrespect coming from you know, like McCartney saying, "Don't play." I'll tell you when I want you to play. And then John Lennon's like, "Well, I'm not even going to show up for your sessions." Right. You know, that's how much your songs mean to me. 
Um, and, you know, we're moving into the period where Harrison is really coming into his own as a songwriter. I mean, we mentioned, well, my guitar gently weeps. You know, as we move into 1969, we're going to have songs like Something and Here Comes the Sun, as well as like a lot of the great songs that ended up on All Things Must Pass, you know, which it must be said didn't end up on Beatles records as songs like Maxwell Silver Hammer did, you know, <laughs> which is kind of insane to think about. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's outtakes from the Let It Be uh film where george starts to play stuff like is isn't it a pity and let it down and like you said all these songs from uh all things must pass and the beatles are just on the other side of the room like barely even listening it's really it's really sad yeah and as we said like there was that incident where harrison finally got fed up during the let it be sessions and he left and do you remember what he said when he <laughs> left it's kind of funny <laughs> he said he storms out and just over his shoulder goes see you around the clubs <laughs> What an exit <laughs> line. Great. What an exit line. See you around the clubs. <laughs> um, and then he goes home and he writes this song called Wawa. One of my favorite George songs. Yeah. And like you look at the song on paper, it sounds like a terrible idea because like Wawa is like. It's a baby sound. Is that supposed to be like a word? It's a baby sound. Yeah. And it, it's like you're giving me like a headache basically by being really annoying. And <laughs> on paper, it just seems like, oh, he's like a rock star complaining about other rock stars. But. It's a great song and it has a great George Harrison guitar riff on it. It ends up, I think, being like one of the great songs on All Things Must Pass. Oh, yeah, totally. So so he's at home writing a song, slagging off his bandmates. John, who by this this point is, is really deep into his heroin addiction and probably isn't completely there, I think semi-seriously suggests, well, all right, if George doesn't come back in a couple days, we'll get Clapton in to, to replace him. Which is yeah, it's like cold. I mean, you know, based on what you've read, do you think he was serious or or, or kidding? Because like I know, like like the Bob Spitz book, for instance, he suggests that Lennon was serious enough to at least consider it. Like I don't know if they would have actually hired Eric Clapton if Harrison had stayed gone from the band, um, but didn't seem like he was terribly emotionally, you know, upset that. Uh, that Harrison left. You know, maybe again, that was because he was on heroin all the time. I think he was just numbed um, up. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it does again, kind of speak to, I guess these guys taking him for granted. I mean, do you, I mean, do you feel like they didn't really appreciate George? Oh yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And I mean, cause yeah, I mean, just to even say that is so, and you look, you really have to look and I'm excited to see what the new let it be. That's come out later this year shows because yeah, the, some of the bootlegs I've seen from the sessions, they're just not even listening to them. It's it's really, and the songs are great. I mean, they're the songs you know from All Things Must Pass, too. So I think he was totally ignored and underappreciated. And, uh, and he really only came back when he had all these demands of like, okay, we're not gonna, Paul's gotta lay off. We're not gonna do for the Let It Be documentary. We're not gonna do some big concert somewhere. Like, I'll, I'll, the far, furthest I'll go is up to the roof. You know, like he, he sort of set his terms for <laughs> returning just like to finish up what they were what they were doing, really. I don't even think at that point George meant to stay that much longer. And yet he did, at least, you know, through Abbey Road. And again, Abbey Road ends up being in a way a George Harrison coming out party, you know, as a great songwriter. I mean, because if you like, like, what are the biggest songs from that record that you think of immediately when you think of Abbey Road? I mean, there's Come Together, obviously, but like, what are the other ones? I mean, Something and Here Comes the Sun. Those are, you know, standouts. Exactly. 
And it's a, something and is the is the first non Lennon McCartney A side that the uh, the Beatles ever had. And it's interesting because like I've read, you know, again various Beatles books and you hear documentaries and I've I've seen examples of like Paul McCartney taking credit for suggesting something as a single, and I've seen Yoko Ono say that it was John's idea. So like there's competing <laughs> camps and Lennon and McCartney trying to take credit for who for knew like, George wrote a good final, song. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're acknowledging, you know, one of us acknowledged the greatness finally of of, of Harrison at this time. <laughs> I will say too, like the bass playing on something by McCartney, I think is incredible. But oh. like, isn't it true that like Harrison resented the bass playing a little bit? I kind of agree. It's sort of like busy because I guess. Now that, that the, the shoe was on the other foot, George was in a position to tell Paul what to play. And I guess George, like, nitpicked his bass playing for hours and hours and hours from there recording it. And Paul put down this insanely busy bass part. And I've never been able to figure out if it's Paul trying to, like, bring out his best for his friend and his great new song. Or if it's Paul just, like, showboating. Because, yeah, George later said, there's a lot of notes in that part, I think was what he said. I love it. I mean, because there's basically, like, a bass solo in the middle of the song, like while George is playing this guitar solo, like Paul's bass solo is like more virtuosic than the guitar solo. And it really does upstage it. I guess in a way, like if I was George, I'd be annoyed, but I mean, I love McCartney's bass playing in general. And I think like on Abbey road, his bass playing is uh, unbelievable. It must've also annoyed George when Frank Sinatra called something the greatest love song of like the last 50 years, like when it came out. But then he also said it was a Lennon McCartney song. <laughs> <laughs> like Even when he has this huge hit that becomes a standard that's like covered by everybody, he still can't get all the credit he deserves. Oh, wait, you did that? Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> like, the, it was the world's reaction to that song. Now, oh. obviously the Beatles, they break up in 1970. And then later on in 70, Harrison puts out, I guess it's his third solo record. It's his first post-Beatles solo record. The first two, uh, like one's a soundtrack and one is like this experimental album, essentially. Um, Neither are really kind of like commercial rock records. But then he puts out All Things Must Pass. And I think you and I have like slightly differing opinions on this record. Like, 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 what do you think of this record? I I love the first two discs of the record. I don't know. I, I am not the world's biggest fan of Thanks for the Pepperoni. I, I I almost feel like he made he decided to make it a triple disc just to make a point. I feel like it didn't necessarily need to be a triple disc. And and again, I'm a guy who loves the fact that the White Album is a double disc. I'm not you know for paring down Beatle records, but I almost was like, all right, yeah, the Beatles did a double record. Well, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a triple record. And obviously, he had this huge store of songs that were dating back probably the Revolver sessions. But and I almost think he wanted to prove a point to Lennon McCartney was look. I had all this stuff to say and you wouldn't let me say it. And now you're going to sit through it. Three records worth. That's what I took it as. So I, I thought that the, the, the kind of Apple Jam stuff was a little superfluous for me. See, okay. I agree with everything you just said. I agree that he was trying to make a point. I agree that like there's a lot of excess on that record. It's also like one of my favorite albums of all time. Um there's only about maybe three or four Beatles albums that I like more than All Things Must Pass. I would say it's definitely my favorite Beatles solo record, like heads and shoulders above the rest. And um, the excess part, well, first of all, you know, we kind of skipped over the first two discs of that record because 
I think it's all heaters for the most part. Oh, I mean, yeah. You could make the argument that there's like a lot of like stately mid-tempo songs where there's like 12 people playing at once <laughs> and there is maybe sort of a sameness to it. But like, what is life? Oh. You know, my sweet Lord, Wawa, beware of darkness. Let it roll. Bout of Sir Frankie Crisp, let it roll. Um, just, just heater after heater. And, you know, we touched on this in the previous episode, like, it was so different from what Lennon and McCartney were doing on their solo records where, you know, McCartney puts a, the Bowl of Cherries record, as we discussed in the previous episode, this homey, you know, sort of intentionally rough, almost like deliberately amateurish sounding record. And then you have like the Primal Scream record from John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band. They're going about it in two totally different ways, but they're both, I guess, in a way trying to demythologize the Beatles, you know, scale down the great heights that they had achieved, like on Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper. Whereas Harrison's like, I'm going to like raise the ante on those records. I'm going to like not just have, you know, all these musicians playing on this record. I'm going to have Phil Spector produce it. And then I'm going to have an album of like 10 minute jams that, by the way, the Apple Jam section, I think of all things must pass is the most coked up music of all time. Like, you can hear the nostrils flaring amidst all those like endless guitar solos. It gives Tusk a run for its money. Of, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's kind of like why I like it. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to like glamorize this sort of thing too much, but like, you know, like Eric Clapton played on those sessions. It's actually the beginnings of like Derek and the Dominoes, like that band played on All Things Must Pass. And he tells a story about how he got hooked on heroin at this time because there was a drug dealer that would come around to the studio where they were making all things must pass. And in order to buy cocaine, you had to also buy heroin. It was sort of like a two for one deal, like a God. You know, the most illicit grocery store of all time. Like what a great guy, by the way, this drug dealer, what a nice guy, what a great businessman. Yeah. Uh, but that's what was going on at this time. I mean, George was really, I think he was feeling himself at this time. It's like, that that album was a huge hit. You know, My Sweet Lord was a number one song. And he really came out of the gate. And the Beatles is like, he, he had like the biggest solo career, like in that first year. Like he was the biggest solo star, really, at that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, his high watermark, I think, was the concert for Bangladesh. Like that's the moment when he right. was center stage as, you know, the, the, the King Beatle. When, when John and Paul were kind of squabbling and releasing albums that seemed, like you said, almost intentionally amateurish. He came out, got all of his, you know, superstar friends to back him. And yeah, that was an Clapton, incredible show. Leon Russell, Dylan. Ringo was there. Dylan shows up. He hadn't been on stage, I think, since 66. Yeah. I think that was his first time since the Hawks tour. He comes out. Yeah, like he was able to pull that together. And, you know, I think Lennon and McCartney were, were were jealous. I mean, there was there's a quote from Lennon <laughs> from around this time where he says, and this is a quote, I don't consider my talents fantastic compared with the universe, but I consider George's less. And then <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. You know, so he's saying, like, it's like, yeah, I'm not the greatest thing in the world, but I'm at least better than George Harrison. <laughs> like, you know, that's the that's the gist of that. And then he he says, this is actually kind of a funny quote, he, the cover of All Things Must Pass, he says that George looks like an asthmatic Leon Russell <laughs> on the cover. So, I mean, just pure hateration, you know, like this guy's doing great. 
and I'm not doing as well as him right now. And, you know, just, just serving the hater Kool-Aid at that point. Well, you know, the, you know towards George. The concert for Bangladesh started kind of a weird thing between John and George because George asked John, he asked all the ex-Beatles to join. Paul said no. John was going to do it, but then George hadn't asked Yoko. And Yoko was basically like, what about me? And George said, uh, not not you, Yoko, but but John, you're welcome. And Yoko was like, you, John, you're not seriously thinking of doing the show without me, are you? And John was like, uh, it's almost like a Curb episode. So John backed <laughs> out because Yoko wasn't, wasn't invited, which, you know, understandably created some tension between the two, especially after George played the, uh, the slide solo on the, uh, on the Paul bashing song, How Do You Sleep? Oh, yeah, which, yeah, we talked about that a lot in the last episode. And... Yeah, just one of the most vicious diss tracks of all time, written by John Lennon towards George Harrison. It is funny to me that George would play on that song, even where, even like when John was still belittling him in the press. Like I don't know exactly what the timeline was on all this, or if George was aware of it. I mean, I do know that eventually there was a falling out with George and John, and. I mean, for a long time, I think in the Beatles, like George and John were closer than like certainly George and Paul were. Like George and John, you know, did a lot of acid together around the same time. Yeah. And, and George has said that like there was a period where he felt like they were equals, you know, because they were doing acid all the time and they'd have these really intense experiences together. But then, of course, that that feeling didn't really last. And I think, you know, by the early 70s, I think George was starting to feel, again, I think he was feeling his oats. Uh, there's a great story, too, about how, like, McCartney wanted to get off of Apple. Like, he wanted to put his records out on a different <laughs> yeah. record label. And and he, he, tells, <laughs> this story. he tells us to George, and George says, you'll stay on the fucking label. Hare Krishna. Phone <laughs> slam. <laughs> yep. I mean, that's what Paul said. I mean, I don't, I don't know if George ever confirmed that he said that, but. You know, George has this period again, like in the early 70s, like where he is a huge star. But then really like by the mid 70s, it starts to turn bad for George. And of course, Paul was really becoming a big star at that point. But this was also like when sort of like the legal entanglements of the Beatles were were finally starting to come to an end. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is when George had Dark Horse, which is you know, just it's how he identified himself in the Beatles as the dark horse that was that would sort of come out ahead. And it's it's a good album. It suffers because he had laryngitis during this time. So he sounds really he sounds literally hoarse on the Dark Horse album. Uh, and it was kind of a weird seller. And he did this strange tour that I think also had Ravi Shankar open for him. And is, is that the tour where he did the uh, In My Life cover? Yeah. OK. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, like the. Just to go back to Dark Horse for a quick minute, because like I, I like that record a lot, and I think it's an interesting choice that he chose to like put that album out. Because if you haven't heard it, you need to listen to it. Because his voice, I, I'm just trying to like describe it. I mean, he's like barking the songs. He kind of sounds like Bob Dylan in like the 2010s. You know, like oh like, yeah, like, like Tom like, Waits. Yeah, like a 70s, like a 70 something year old Bob Dylan, and this is like George Harrison. I don't even know if he, he, I think he had maybe just turned 30, you know, like he just sounds shot. Um, but yeah, like he did this, he did this tour where he's like really skinny and looks unhealthy. I think he was really abusing Coke at that time. Um, which I think also contributed to his vocals being pretty shot. And he does this cover of in my life, which is a, of course is a 
famous Lennon-McCartney song, I think mainly written by John Lennon. And at the end, instead of saying, you know, like, I love you more, he says, I love God more. <laughs> <laughs> and it just ends up being this sort of sign to people like, oh, George Harrison has lost his damn mind. You know, because he was doing like weird, like reggae versions of like, what is life? And like some of those other songs, like just really bizarre arrangements that didn't work at all. Um, and it so seemed like it, he it, was... He was like really fading commercially, it seems like at that time. So it's in the midst of all this that the Beatles like breakup paperwork is finally officially ready to go. And they have it all laid out at the Plaza Hotel. They've got George is coming to sign it. Ringo's coming to sign it. Paul's coming to sign it. John lives literally across the street, the Dakota, across Central Park. All he has to come is walk down the road and sign it. He won't come. He says his, his astrologers tells him the stars aren't right to sign this paperwork. And George went nuts on him apparently it was like a huge thing it's like because he so badly wanted the beetle thing to be end and just be, be over and behind him and be done and 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 john just would come down the street to sign the paperwork yeah and it just seemed like another instance i'm sure in his mind of like oh this is just like when you didn't show up to play on i me mine or you know or whatever yeah, like yeah. back in the late 60s like you can't be bothered to accommodate me at all um, and it's, you know, we, we talked in the previous episode about how like, you know, like Lennon and McCartney were able to reconcile somewhat, you know, by, you know, by the time Lennon ended up being murdered, I feel like this was like really kind of the end of their contact. I mean, I don't think that they yeah. really reconciled after this. No, absolutely not. I mean, and George wrote a memoir in 1979 called I Me Mine, which is this really weird book. It's like oh, it's maybe 40 pages. Weird. It's kind of unreadable. Yeah, I remember a, I remember buying it and being like really disappointed because it's sort of like Oh, same. It's like it, it's kind of like liner notes meets like, you know, like tab pages, meet, you know, like meets like lyric sheets. <laughs> it's it's not really yeah. like a coherent book. No. And it's again, it's it's like not nowhere near a real biography, but the Beatles are barely mentioned and John is I think his name is in there maybe once. I forget. John takes huge offense to this, and which is weird when you consider, like you just said, it's not really a biography. It's a very strange book. It kind of makes sense that he's not mentioned much in it. Like nobody's mentioned much in it except like God and George himself. Um, but that really hurt John's feelings. And really to the end of his life, that was kind of like the last thing that was in the air between the two of them was, was how much he resented George for not mentioning him and crediting him more in, in his memoir. It, doesn't he say something like, you know, there's like every two-bit sax player that ever was yeah. on a George Harrison record is mentioned in this book, but I'm like in there once. And, yeah, he's know. like, I helped him write Taxman, damn it. And he's got every sax player that ever backed him. Yeah, no, he was he was really pissed about that. Which, you know, on one hand, you could say, you know, John, come on. Like, this is sort of like another instance, and we talked about this in the previous episode, of like John being this fascinating combination of like, extremely confident in his own ability and also extremely insecure. And that really comes out in his relationships with certainly with Paul and to a lesser degree, George, who seems like, you know, he had to assert his dominance on George all the time and remind George that he was, you know, not as good as him. So then George kind of gives it back to him in his own book by ignoring him and John can't take it, you know, and there is maybe in, 
Harrison's mind, maybe an element of revenge there, I, I wonder. But Oh, yeah. I mean, think uh, of all the years that John didn't show up to his sessions. And when he was going out on dates with his girlfriend, George would be following behind him. And he'd be like, oh, don't look. George is following me. Go on, keep going, keep going. Yeah, he was, John ignored George so often in the studio and in personal lives. So it makes total sense. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. <laughs> My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So, John, of course, is murdered in December of 1980. Terrible tragedy. As we said before, you know, McCartney and Lennon were able to establish like a kind of rapport in the mid-70s. They visit each other. It seems like they have a good time. You know, <laughs> again, I keep thinking of the VH1 movie where they get stoned and listen to reggae bands in the park. I don't think that actually happened. But, you know, they, they had a good time. They weren't they weren't that fun, but they were still having a good time. Um, Harrison didn't really achieve that kind of peace, but then he did, he did write a song that uh, came out, I think it was in 81, that song all those years ago, which is an interesting oh, yes. song. 
very interesting. It was going to be a Ringo song, and then after uh, and then after John was shot, they made it into a, a tribute form. And it was actually it was a Beatles reunion song, sort of. They got Paul to do bass and backing vocals, and Ringo played drums on it. It's it's kind of chipper for a tribute song, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, it's you know well because McCartney had a song around the same time called "Here Today," which is on the oh. Tug of War album that George Martin produced, and that is it's basically like a yesterday rewrite you know acoustic guitar with like a string section it is more of like a straightforward you know emotional type tribute whereas harrison's it is almost like a buddhist type tribute where you know yeah you're accepting stepping through to the next yeah like you're accepting like that loss is a part of life and you're not just dwelling on your sadness that you're you know almost being joyful about your friend passing to another dimension or something. Um, so, I mean, it seems like at least in death, he started to have uh, some warm feelings towards John. It's interesting too. Cause like in the eighties, the eighties were actually a pretty good decade for George Harrison, especially towards the end of the eighties uh, in a way that they weren't for McCartney. I feel like McCartney, like he was putting out like press to play. In like the late eighties, flowers like, in the dirt. Yeah. yeah, although flowers in the dirt, I think is a pretty good record. But like press to play, I feel like is like definitely like a nadir for for him. Whereas George has the aforementioned Cloud Nine record, and then he you know is in the Traveling Wilburys. And I always wonder like if the Traveling Wilburys were like his way of like reliving the Beatles experience, but like with more with his actual friends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like I can be it's in like a band an exorcism again. of the band with, experience. Yeah, it's like these are all famous people like me, but like we're actually bros and we can have a good time. And like, you know, Bob Dylan was in that band, you know, his old songwriting partner from, you know, 20 years earlier. It's like, hey, Paul, you're not going to be in the Traveling Wilburys because you'd never write with me, but I'm going to bring Bob Dylan into my band because he <laughs> write with me, man. <laughs> I wonder well, if Paul, when George was having hits around this time and Paul, I guess, would kind of make overtures of saying, like, oh, yeah, George, we should write together. And then George would go in the press and say, yeah, Paul wants to write with me. I don't know what, like, why now? Like, if I was there for 30 years and he never wanted to write with me, but now I'm starting to, like, do okay. Paul wants to write with me again. Well, then they ended up... So did, bitter. I mean, they did come together eventually uh, in the 90s with the Anthology Project and they recorded some old you know, John Lennon demos, essentially. I don't know. Like, what do you think of those songs? Like free as a bird and real love were the two songs that came out of that. I mean, I, I sort of forget them. I, I mean, in a way, I'm glad they existed. I'm glad that at least the three of them had that moment together. But I, I in terms of, of just what they add to the Beatles legacy musically, I, mm, eh, I don't really, I, I don't really rank them much, but I, I it goes without saying, George absolutely hated the experience in the studio, though. All the old wounds with Paul came right back. Right. Well, uh, yeah, because, I mean, Paul was basically trying to dictate the sessions, just like he did in the 60s, right? Yeah, I mean, but, well, George agreed to do it because he needed money, because his his um, his film studio was, was just hemorrhaging money. So he agreed to do it, but he had his terms. And one of the terms was getting Jeff Lynn, his traveling Wilbury buddy, to, to produce it. And, um, and they sort of laid down all these kind of ground rules, but yeah, George said it was like being a Beatle again. And he didn't mean it in a good way at all. Like they, when they were tackling free as a bird, uh, Paul wanted it to be this like big lush orchestral track. And then George kind of wanted it to be what it became really. Well, it was almost like a slide guitar heavy, almost like a, my sweet Lord 
redux sort of song. Right. And it's interesting, too, that by getting Lynn to produce it, those songs sound like late period George Harrison songs. You know, even though he yeah. doesn't sing them, like they have the sound of like Cloud Nine and the Traveling Wilburys records. Uh, you know, so as much as like Paul might have wanted to be in control, they, they weirdly sound like George Harrison songs, you know, as, yeah, as, really as much too. as anyone. I got to say, too, like, you know, as we were getting ready for this series, you know, I, and I know you did the same thing. Like I rewatched Beatles Anthology and Harrison is like maybe my favorite. <laughs> oh, he still the, the show. He's great. Like one of my favorite parts of that uh, of that series is like where he's talking about, you know, this the whole thing about, Well, no, I was going to say like when they were just talking about the songwriting situation and like how he had to oh, yeah. start from nothing and he was trying to assert himself, you know, in the mid 60s. And he just has this line where he says, you know, I had to come up with something that could fit next to their many wondrous hits. <laughs> and, he, and he says it with like this little smirk and it's so dry and perfect, you know, just this idea that again, this is like many years later, this is like, you know, him being interviewed in the early nineties, it's still sticking in his craw that, you know, he's going to be compared to these guys all the time. And he has to have, you know, sort of the, the image of Lennon McCartney hanging over his head, no matter what he does. You know, in, in every interview post 1970, 71, he gives you the impression that being in the Beatles was the worst thing that ever happened to him. Like it was a giant trauma. Like if really, if you go all the way through and in the anthology too, he has like very little nice to say about it. And even at the end too, when like they're kind of giving in the final episode, they're giving their like final thoughts and Ringo's talking about, you know, it was a lot of really kind, loving moments between four people. And, and Paul was is, is doing his thing and talking about what a great little rock and roll band they were. And he I think that what would he say? Something Beatles gave their nervous system, which was like, you know, we, <laughs> right. I, I gave so much of myself. Yeah. You really get the experience that it was something that he, he really didn't like and never recovered from. And uh, even 30 years later, I think this, that's part of the contradiction of him in a way, because I, I know I'm sure there's, there's a big part of him that felt that way, that being a Beatle was a burden and, it uh, you know was detrimental to his nervous system and all that stuff, but also he was the guy that also seemed most comfortable blowing it up with other rock stars. Yeah, you know, and, I, and I guess I think of like the Traveling Wilburys being a big example of that um, in a way that I don't think John and Paul necessarily are. You know, and I, in a way, it probably has something to do with Harrison. I think ultimately being most comfortable in a band. I mean, again, I think that's another irony of his career where as great as he could be as a solo artist, he does seem like someone best suited for collaboration, like where he can be around other creative people and he can contribute what he can contribute and also benefit from other people. Um, Cause you can see in a solo career, a pretty big drop off after he put out, he puts out all things must pass which is essentially material that he accumulated while when he was in the orbit of Lennon and McCartney. And then his next solo records, there's some really good stuff on some of those records, but they're not nearly as good. And then he's also not as prolific for a long time after that. And you know, as much as he might've hated being in that environment, it's hard to argue that he didn't benefit tremendously uh, as an artist from being in that environment as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost seemed like he'd proven his point and 
he lost interest in that side of things. I mean, he was very busy in the late 70s doing stuff with Monty Python on film production work, Formula One racing, and all, he had a lot of things to keep him busy, but it almost seemed like he needed that. I always thought of All Things Must Pass as being like a spite album, like one of the great spite albums of all time, all three albums, or three discs worth. Uh, and he almost felt like he needed to brush up against Lennon and McCartney to, 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 to spur him to those heights, yeah. You know, when we think about, I guess, like the end of Harrison's life, you know, which came in 2001, it's so sad to me. I mean, this is like another way that he's linked with the other Beatles because, of course, you know, Lennon was brutally murdered by a supposed fan in 1980. And then Harrison is also attacked by his home. You know, a person when he, in his home. And I, I mean, was the person a fan of his I, that attacked him? I'm trying this, to remember uh, what like it a, was. I think I, I, he definitely had some kind of mental illness. I forget what, what his rationale was, though. I, I think he was a fan. But, like, we all love the Beatles, and yet, like, two of the Beatles, like, were brutally attacked. And, like, Harrison survived his attack, but he was already in the throes of, you know, fighting cancer at that time. And, you know, like, when you watch that uh, great Martin Scorsese documentary about George Harrison. Oh, oh, um, so good called living in the material world is it you know danny his son says basically like you know i feel like that attack took a lot out of him and it was hard for him to you know basically keep that fight up for his health after that which you know of course makes all the sense in the world that that would happen um but it's so sad to me that like there's that echo between john and george you know like these guys that we all love like why would they be attacked you know, it's just such a bummer to me. Standing for love and peace. Yeah, it's really, really one of the cruelest ironies of the, of the whole saga, Beatles saga, that that was how, that was the fate that befell both of them. I mean, and yeah, I mean, that attack was, was absolutely vicious. That, that Scorsese movie, I don't think I've ever watched it with and, and not not gotten choked up or sobbed. That is a, a incredible documentary. Highly recommend it oh, to anyone who hasn't seen it. I oh. mean, the last time I saw it, I totally got choked up at the part where Tom Petty tells a story about George Harrison calling him up to say, to tell him that Roy Orbison has died. And George Harrison says to Tom Petty, aren't you glad it's not you? Oh man. And that was like, not a dry eye <sighs> in the Steve Hyden household. Where that, Cause it's like Tom Petty saying, aren't you glad it's not you? Of course, Tom Petty's not with us. George Harrison is not with us. And you know, Roy <sighs> Orbison died and you know, 30 some years ago. Do we need to take a moment? I feel like there's yeah. <laughs> lots of tears on this podcast. Um, I mean, well, the thing that yeah, well, the thing that makes me feel a little better about all this and, and and makes the tears go a little bit is that Paul and George kind of by the end of, of of George's life, George knew he had limited time left, and and he didn't want what happened with John to happen with him and Paul. So they they kind of patched things up, and they had a nice moment before before he went. So I, I as a fan, I hold on to that. And I know, like when I saw McCartney last time play live which was a couple years ago he was still playing something mm. in his sets like on, like on the ukulele which is something he's done for a really long time and I think there was a picture of George on the screen I don't remember there being a similar moment for John Lennon in the set I think you know he didn't take a moment to pay tribute to John Lennon he was still doing that for George though and I think it's worth remembering you know it was a reminder that you know, they were mates before yeah. there was a Beatles, you know, like he was friends with George before he knew John, I think. And certainly before George knew John. 
So really like a lifelong friend who had passed and that clearly still meant a lot to him. Um, As we look at like this relationship between, you know, Lennon and McCartney and Harrison, it really is a fascinating dynamic because you think of George Harrison as being this iconic, legendary figure, you know, who takes a back seat to no one except these two guys. (laughs) And it happens to be the two guys who are in the band that he's most famous for. And it, it's such a unique situation because it, as we've said, it seems to have tortured him on some level, but on the other hand, was obviously a boon for him to be in a band with these guys. You know, like it's hard to say that he suffered from being in these guys' orbit, but it was also a burden as he tried to assert himself and to not be the little brother figure anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about him is that he's supposed to be like the biggest rock star on the planet, except for these two other guys. And those feelings of frustration and inadequacy that that he would feel make him so much more relatable you know i mean it it just goes to show like no matter how far you get there are certain things that we as humans feel that are unavoidable and inescapable and that that's what i i think is one of the many things that fascinates me about him is that you know he he could be george harrison who author of something and here comes the sun but still get needled by paul mccartney when they go back in the studio 30 years later for the anthology and it still hurts him pisses him off yeah no there's something really human about that yeah, and I think that's why, you know, like when people talk about their favorite Beatles, you know, and, and I don't even know the answer to that for myself. I feel like I I change all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, but there's something about George, and I think this is probably true of Ringo too, but like I think one reason people gravitate to George is for what you were saying, that there's something a little more relatable to George, which is weird to say because it's like, he was an obscenely rich and famous man who, you know, <laughs> and talented, yeah. did wonderful things. He's not like, you know, he's he's the opposite of like a Joe Sixpack or something. But compared to Lennon and McCartney, you know, there's just something about him that was maybe a little more sort of down to earth. And of course, Ringo is like the ultimate example of that. Um, but I mean, I, I think if you look at these two, it, it, like if we're going to make a pro case for Lennon and McCartney, we probably don't need to spend too much time on that. I mean, it's pretty no. obvious what the, what the pro case is for Lennon McCartney, greatest songwriting partnership ever, uh, two of the most beloved rock stars of all time, head of the Beatles. You know, I don't know what more you need to say about those two. Um, but if the pro case for George Harrison, I mean, we've kind of made it already. I mean, like, what, like, what would like what are the things for you that stand out about George Harrison? Like, what are the keys to his greatness, as far as you're concerned? Well, I think musically, like we were saying earlier, I mean, two of the most identifiable sounds of, of the decade are sort of come from him, the the, the Indian sitar sound and the, the chimey electric 12-string stuff. And then also, like you were saying, in the early 70s, that slide guitar sound. I, his his musical influence, I think, really goes really uncommented on a lot. I mean, of course, Lennon McCartney had all those songs, but the actual sound of it, really a lot of that came from him, and I think that's that's important. And... Also, like we were saying earlier, too, he is the dark horse. I think he has the most fascinating growth arc of all four of the Beatles, too. And it's like it's like a musical Rocky tale. You know, I mean, he's this guy who came from nothing to go up against two of the greatest songwriters of their generation or, you know, maybe even any generation. And by the end, on Abbey Road, he was on par with them. And, you know, and he got the A-side single. And there's this funny story where recently um, 
there was this tape of a late era Beatles meeting right after Abbey Road was released where they were actually discussing making another album, which is very strange to think about now. And the plan... I know, is that wild? It's so crazy, right? And and the idea was that they were going to... John, Paul, and George were all going to contribute four songs. So he was going to be an equal partner finally. And that's really interesting that he made it you know he that was even in their eyes they all admitted like we got to give george equal time here so i don't know i I think that that's so inspiring and something as a fan that i really admire about his whole story is he did it you know he he came from from nowhere and not that being you know next to lennon and mccartney on stage is nowhere but just creatively he worked at it he put in the work and he did it i think that's really cool yeah i agree with everything you just said i think you know he was a great guitarist Again, like a very distinctive sound of like rock music of that era. Like his slide guitar is like one of my favorite sounds of that era. I think, again, I think he has the best Beatles solo album. I think people could maybe argue for Plastic Odo Band or, you know, I know a lot of people love Ram. I think Ram is your favorite Beatles solo re- record. Yeah, yeah. All Things Must Pass is number two. And All Things Must Pass really is like one of my favorite albums made by anybody. I love that record. I think what makes the Beatles special, and, and I guess we're going to pivot now into our together section, like where everyone comes together in the spirit of peace and harmony. We bring the rivals under the same tent. I think what makes the Beatles, one of the things that makes the Beatles so great and interesting is that they did have this third songwriter uh, that was outside of the power couple of Lennon and McCartney. You know, if the Beatles had just been Lennon and McCartney songs, they would have obviously still been a huge band, very successful. They would have been great. But, Harrison's musical elements, like what he was able to bring in from, you know, the Indian music influences and just his persona, which was this loner, introspective, philosophical guy. It just added another layer of richness to the Beatles. And it was another thing that made them totally unique uh, because there's not a lot of bands that have that element where, you know, you listen to the band, you're sort of used to an authorial voice, you know, you have someone who's sort of in charge of writing the songs, you know, you have the singer, you have the focal point of the band, but the Beatles really had multiple focal points. And even if George Harrison wasn't at the same level as Lennon and McCartney, it was a very sort of unique presence in the band. Um, And to have a song like within without you, or to have a song like something next to all those great Lennon and McCartney songs. It just makes the Beatles, I think, that much greater. Lennon and McCartney wouldn't let him in to their songwriting partnership, but he was able to compliment them anyway with what he brought to the table. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that the the when you actually think back on it, a lot of the stuff that we associate with the Beatles really did originate from him. I I, I, I said it before and I say it again with all the sitar sounds and and the, the 12 string. Yeah, I, I think that, that he was such a crucial underappreciated element on top of all the songs that he brought too. just just little things. I mean, Paul tells the story about and I love her. He wrote that. Paul George is the one who wrote the guitar lick to that. You know, I mean, all these little that's the thing you think about when you think of that song. I think that that sums up sort of his time in the Beatles. There's really the, a lot of the little moments that you do remember really did come from him. It's kind of amazing, too, that like he wrote that lick, but he didn't get credit right? as a songwriter. I know. Because like that is the hook of that yeah. song, that that little guitar part. Oh well. Do you have a favorite Beatle, by the way? 
I mean, if I'm honest with myself, it's Paul. Um, I, I, I think there's different times when I, I wish it was John and I admire elements of John, but I think the sort of like people pleasing goody goody nature that I tend to have is more more of a Paul thing. And I also, I, I love his, his music. I think the quality of his voice is so amazing and adaptable from doing like Ray Charlesy stuff, like the long winding road and to all the way to the little Richard howls and all the folk stuff. Like I will, I, I just, I, I love his voice. So yeah, I, I gotta say Paul, I think is my favorite. I mean, I think Paul was the most talented. I think John was in a way the most interesting George is the one I, I think I want to hang out with the most. Totally. Certainly George and Ringo, but I really would want to hang out with any of the Beatles. So there's two of them left. And as I've said many times in these episodes, Paul, Ringo, text me, call me. You've talked to Jordan like a bajillion times. You've never talked to me. I'll put in a good word for you. Give me you. some love. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be weird in our next episode to not talk about the Beatles. I it's know. so fun. Just Should we just make a new living podcast? Living land. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> I know it's like do we yeah it's like the world needs another Beatle podcast I think uh, you know there's not there's there's a real shortage of people talking about the Beatles right now, um, but we'll find a way. It's always fun talking about with rivalries with you. We'll be leaving Liverpool in our next episode, and we'll be going into some other new musical war zone. <laughs> I can't wait for it. I'll get my pith hat on. I can't wait. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Chacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.